out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is David Eastall, the C86 Show. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of Martin Rev, one half of the uh, American-based band Suicide, who I spoke to very recently to find out more about life, love, poetry, and all that other groovy stuff. Anyway, this is the interview, and um, yes, it does go on a very long time, so prepare your, <laughs> prepare for this. And if you want to listen to it, good. If you don't, then don't bother. Don't, um, don't listen in and say, well, it went on a long time, David. That's just the nature of it. Anyway, um, there is also a little bit of a gap in between where, you know, we have to have a break. <laughs> it goes on, like I said, for a very long time. Anyway, that's just details. You'll catch it. You know, you'll know what happens halfway through. Um, and also, the first bit has been edited out because we get into various stuff that you know, he doesn't want to talk about. Same with the end bit as well. Anyway, look, so... Um, that's just details. So, yeah, so after 10 minutes, that's all hit the editing floor. And we got down to that very interesting um, subject that was the early formative years. Martin, it's over to you. Well, what first comes to mind is when I was about, uh, I can almost say when I was about six, seven years old. Uh, that was formative because my... Uh, on Sundays, my father, who never studied or read a note of music in his life, would pull out a stringed instrument, not a guitar, it was more like a, not a banjo, like a mandolin, something he had since he was a kid, I guess. And uh, he and my brother, who had just been given, started lessons on accordion, uh, would do to my father's uh, Bequest, request, do a little jam session every Sunday. And, mm -hmm. and uh, my father would just rattle off one song after another, uh, which was amazing. I've never totally been uh, not in awe of the fact of his ear to this day. And my brother would play along best he could. And uh, seeing them, I would... Uh, wanted to get into that band <laughs> any way I could. So I actually uh, I hadn't yet started an instrument, which they had me do too at some point. I picked up a, a tin of marbles. I had marbles like in a plastic, yeah. you know, little tin that you, you know, keep things in. And I just started shaking it as percussion. And I was in the band. <laughs> so I just automatically I just started doing a percussion. But I think that was a pretty f formative moment. After that, it was um, starting to improvise. Yes. When I so found. Were your, so were your parents or was your father quite an artistic kind of creative person? It sounds like it. I think naturally he was. Well, he was. He had planned for a career in theater. He loved the, in acting and theater. He loved. Uh, he was studying acting as a young man, teenager, and uh, only because of the necessities of his family during the Depression, uh, and him being the old, he being the oldest and being, feeling that, you know, loyal to them, he was told he had to leave all of that, leave college, leave 
acting school where he was studying with people like Lee J. Cobb and Garfield, all those people mm -hmm. down uh, around Washington Square. Lee Strasberg apparently had the, uh, his school. At that time, the Actors Theater was right on Washington Square North, so right around the park, one of those buildings, before they moved a little bit further uptown. And they would study, and uh, that was his love. So, but the music thing, uh, he just had one of those incredible natural ears. He never thought about it, never talked about it. Yeah. And I saw him years later sometimes come across maybe a new instrument like a vibraphone. And uh, we had one in our, in our flat for a while, years ago, and uh, loft. And he just, uh, somebody had lent you look. And he had just picked up the uh, mallets while everybody else was talking. I saw he just started to pick out songs, you know. Uh, but he was always uh, reading my mother as well, and always uh, very interested in a broad spectrum of the arts. Yes. My mother was a studied piano as a young girl and still kept playing as she got older for herself. And, uh, but yeah, I would say he was uh, for sure innately, incredibly uh, talented and, and artistic. Yes, so did he, was he also interested in, you know, like painters, like I suppose the, the, the post-impressionists and people like Jackson Pollock and right. Rothko, was, was, were, were things well, like that possible? You think, yeah, yeah, it's a good question because that was right in the time and uh, his time and our to my time as a, as a child, but uh, he never talked about painters very much. And I know he was very, he was aware of what was going on. Mm. So I don't, you know, I don't think that was, uh, it was a little less under the, the, acting was the thing for theater. Once he get, had to give up acting, he felt, but he always stayed close to theater. And, uh, even producing a play or two later on in his life. Uh, but no, he, we never talked about it. It's an interesting point. Yeah, uh, neither of my parents never talked about painting. Uh, it was mostly, uh, and my interest being more and more in music as I started learning more because, you know, uh, he encouraged me by sometimes taking me to hear people occasionally. And uh, especially when I was a little underage to get into the clubs. And uh, my mother certainly loved music. She was very close to music. Later, of course, she went, uh, she had more time, she's more free. She went and explored everything, you know, museums, art. I mean, they were all very aware people. But I became more independently, I think, aware of art as I uh, came of age. Because it, it was kind of an interesting period, because in the sort of 50s, you had that sort of the beat generation with people like Ginsberg and then obviously Jack Kerouac and Neil Cassidy, who he just right. did as John, you know, Dil, yeah. Dean Moriarty in the book On the Road. But then, you know, we had the surf kind of period as well, didn't we, with Jan and Dean and the Beach Boys and then the pop world that was the Beatles right. and that kind of explosion of pop but at the same time we had Andy Warhol and pop art you know which was kind of obviously kind of probably quite important in the New York scene did right. you did were you picking up on that change in and your family 
did the 60s that kind of shifted kind of like the early Beatles to the psychedelic period to you know basically get into Woodstock did that all kind of come part of your sort of um, fabric in life it did but after because as a pre-teenager I was already uh, a rock and roll child of the rock and roll era so we're talking about the 50s even you know we're talking about as we get into the late 50s towards the 60s and into the 60s rock was everything singles 45s coming off the radio every day uh, off the streets to the radio fresh songs constantly and that was my upbringing basically my gener you know my environment yes because you were virtually uh, the same age or vaguely the same age i think as as david bowie and lemmy from motorhead and whenever they were asked who their you know musical influence was they both say quite separately <laughs> little richard was always the name that came to them well know. little richard yeah little richard and groups like uh uh danny and the juniors was uh my first 45 that i bought uh silhouettes get a job after was a second you know i saw elvis uh when he first appeared on ed sullivan you know I was such a i was a kid you know, i mean talk about a kid i was a baby i mean i was probably uh whatever that was six or seven years old or something yes. and uh and then i saw for the first time people like jerry lee lewis who also appeared on tv it was an incredibly uh Forment, fomentive period. I mean, it was a, it was a energizing, it was a revolution happening. And uh, I didn't have to think about it. Buddy Holiday, Buddy Holly and you know, Peggy Sue and all those records were coming out one after the other. Dick Clark, American Bandstand, yeah. I believe was on every day with another show. And uh, so, that would be something where I got home from school, maybe at three o'clock, the clock came on, timed it very well, maybe at 3.30 or four, and we'd watch, watch that every day. And we saw all the people we were hearing on the radio too, you know, performing live, syncing, lip syncing. And uh, all the lists that he had of this, the Jocker Theater. And uh, so that was my, that was, you know, Later, a couple of years later, okay, the Beatles, uh, Revelation, Stones, you know, yeah. the English scene, so to speak. Uh, in between, there was a discovery of something that amazed me, which was jazz, American jazz, which was also in a period of great, incredible innovation and vibrancy. So, so you're talking about, uh, yeah, so rock and then jazz. And so I started playing rock on, on the keyboard, figuring out the songs, Paragons and the Jesters, stuff like, because this is all music too that every, we'd all dance to. It was a soundtrack of our lives, so to speak. The yeah. school had a dance. You know, if you went to a party, if you were lucky enough, if you hung out with you, everybody was listening to some hipper than others. Uh, taste, but but it was all great stuff then. It holds. I mean, today if I hear most of it, it still sounds as great. Uh, but jazz coming in, uh, my brother, being quite a, a bit older, 
was already listening to late night radio, some of the uh, jazz stations and taping stuff. So I got the exposure from him. So were you listening to things like Miles Davis, you know, Kind of Blue and Beaches Brew? Yeah, yeah. Well, Miles, like was, Uncle, yeah. Uncle we're talking Trey. about, exactly. We're talking about, uh, those were the period. But of course, at that point, Miles hadn't even made Kind of Blue, but I got to that late. I got to that when I did, uh, maybe it was a year or two after, uh, Coltrane's records, uh, nothing, a monk, nothing before that generation. I didn't get to Charlie Parker and whatnot, you know, in my understanding. Yes. Well, several years later. Yeah. Uh, so, but it was all Miles and Coltrane and Monk, essentially in that period. And others, of course, uh, Red Garland and Bill Evans. But and, were you, and were you picking up on those comedians at the time as well, like Lenny Bruce and uh, I don't know, Richard Pryor wasn't about then, was he really? But then you had, you know, Lord Butley, didn't you? And 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 theatre companies like was there the Fire Sign Theatre Company and people like the Rockettes, not the Rockettes, the um, Coquettes, Coquettes who came from San Francisco right. and were doing their kind of crazy yeah. stuff in in there, but came over to the East Side. You know, to, you, know you know what? Uh, like the Beat Generation, I would say they were a little before my time. I missed them. Uh, at the time, and I picked up on them in, in retrospect after, like the beats were maybe like, you know, late 40s, early 50s. Like Charlie Parker, like, you know, the jazz scene then, of course, was what the beats came out of in many respects. Yeah. You know, so much came out of, but the freedom of the new writing, the new American writing, the first real American writing, first real American art, abstract expressionism, they call it, came out of the jazz ethic really with how they you know what was happening on the on the stage jazz stage so now Lenny Bruce I remember driving by uh my father maybe was driving down on second avenue where the Fillmore was where there was another theater there that time and I saw Lenny Bruce's name on the marquee the thing, the problem with uh, being exposed to Lenny Bruce too at that time for me was that, of course, he was never on television that I could find. Yeah. He had been, I think, on some little Steve Allen, one of those kind of late night, Hugh Hefner kind of things or something. Maybe. I think so. You could find him on YouTube now. But I never was ever exposed to Lenny Bruce that way. Yeah. And of course, this is already the time of his, uh, probably he was abused to such an extent and that was the dragging him through the court system. And, you know, he can't do clubs and this and that. So uh, I missed him then and also caught up with him later. You know. Yes, yes. Well, I remember kind of recently I did an interview with the drummer Hunt Sells, who was in Iggy Pop's band, who did Lust for Life. And his, his dad used to be, is it Soupy Sells? He used to be sort of, you know, on, on daytime television doing his Soupy Sells? Yes. His dad was Super Sales? Yes. Yeah, I think I heard that somewhere. Eggie's drummer. Yeah, someone, somebody That's made hunt. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> well, Super Sales was on TV. So, of course, kids, I didn't, I never watched him maybe more than once, but I did see his face at Image. I don't think he was my, he turned out to be really a very cool, progressive guy, man. And, you know, brought people on 
that uh, would never get on TV at that time. I saw something on YouTube a while ago, I forget who he had on, that, you know, was, was totally uh, revolutionary, brought this cat on. But um, the taste was not like, you know, it was like Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood or something, man. That was, you know, something I just turned, you know, <laughs> I wasn't gonna watch at that time. But yeah, exposure, TV was, was so predominant at that yeah. time. So. Well, it was such a sort of thing, wasn't it? It was a treat. Yeah. So as the 60s progressed, you know, we had sort of 67, there was the Summer of Love in San Francisco at Golden Gate Park. And then there was also in, in the UK, there was the 14-hour Technicolor Dream at the Alley Pally, where they had people like Pink Floyd playing and there was, you know, Sid Barrett and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And then as the sort of 60s went on, you know, there was the kind of things started to get a bit sour, don't they? And then you end up with Woodstock and then Altamont and Charles Manson. So during that period, you must have been sort of picking up on that kind of particular changing yeah. vibe of the optimism of the decade to the, oh God, the parties started to get quite seedy. Yeah, well, if the 60s, the uh, so-called, you know, the next generation after beats the, the hippie, what they call the hippie period, the flower period, that was all the most predominant environment there was I mean and it was everywhere in, in so much because it was political and it was social psychological you know because yeah. and uh so that had a very strong influence you couldn't escape that I lived uh spent a lot of time downtown around the Lower East Side and you know St. Mark's Place the Lower East Side if you're familiar with that that block between second and third avenue that and Haight-Ashbury in Frisco, those couple of blocks, were the epicenters of the whole movement. So you couldn't walk down St. Mark's Place any time in the daytime, uh, any day, and not have it packed, packed with the new, pe the new people, you know, the yeah. new generation out there. And, uh, and then the new music that came out of that, you know, the extension of, the next rock, the next wave in rock, which came out of uh, the American and the English, you know, the, the, the 60s uh, so-called uh, psychedelic also influenced, you know, and Hendrix and out of Frisco and all the groups out of, well, both three sides essentially, but all over, all over the States. Yeah. And England, of course. And, uh, no, that was that was really part of my life as well, but it was an extension of the uh, birth into the environment of rock and roll. That was my immediate uh, soundtrack. So when 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 sort of there was the kind of the kind of you know Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix, Jim Morrison dying, and the Beatles breaking up. Did that feel like, okay, they were right, music's, you know, popular music's going to last off three or four years and then that's going to be it? Because the establishment were quite, yeah, this is just a fad, it's not going to continue like this. Now, there was that great, you know, interview with, I think it was Mick Jagger in about 1963, where someone said, how long do you think this will go for? And he said, oh, probably we'll do another album in another 18 months. And obviously we all chuckled because we realised, you know, 50 years later, they're still rocking. Did they... To you, did it feel a bit like, oh my God, this is this is kind of devastating, you know? Because in hindsight, obviously it's like, oh yes, obviously it continues. But at the time it must have felt quite 
like, oh my God, it's really over. And those people who were so part of that scene, who must after five years, often, you know, five years seems to be a period of time where people get quite burnt out. It must have felt a little bit like, well, what happens next? Because we've just lost this kind of, these major players. I probably would have if I wasn't as involved by that time in my own direction and my own, you know, involvement in, in what I wanted to accomplish and, do, and play in my playing musically. So uh, what really struck me is that those three J's, Jimmy, Janice, and Jim Morrison, all went, you know, left us at uh, around, the, around the same time. I'd have to look again, but man, it was, what was it, within the same month or same year? <laughs> and that seemed, that seemed fairly uh, noticeable, even suspicious to an extent. Uh, as far as the Beatles breaking up, I wasn't as attached to the Beatles as many of my schoolmates were, especially many of the, the girls were at first, because uh, I was already so entrenched. I mean, of course, I noticed them. I mean, they were very, you know, evident. And the Stones, too, at that point, you know, it took me a while to really uh, immerse myself in, in a way, you know, have an experience on that side. Yeah. That stayed with me, uh, and still does. Uh, so when those things, when they, when those things happen, I mean, what was it, uh, Goodbye Miss American Pie or something, it was McLean oh, sang yeah, it song. Yeah. He was singing it about uh, uh, Richie Valens, the big bopper, and, uh, and the third, why is, why I'm escaping it now, three who were on that, in that, on that was crash. That Buddy, was it Buddy Holly? Or Buddy Holly, of course. It was Buddy Holly, the three of them. Now that was already, that I noticed too, of course. I didn't think, I don't remember thinking, where is it going? I just, uh, of course it was a shock. Well, when you're like six or seven or eight years old, man, you just notice things and you, you just keep going, man, you know, it's like, but, um, so I wasn't wondering in that way. I mean, also, when Coltrane left, it was so sudden. I remember where I was when I heard about it. I was actually just coming from playing in the country with a band, a gig that I had, driving back late at night. We heard it on the radio. I mean, that was like news, man. That was like, whoa like the president passing away or something. You hear it on late night radio, you know? Yes. And, uh, but even then, I mean, I didn't think where are things going? You kind of knew where things were going. I mean, in that case, all the new movements were already overlapping each other. So at the time of uh, Buddy Holly and, and, and uh, Richie Valens, Big Bopper, it was already, stuff going on. Of course, Little Richard was still here. Yes. Uh, Elvis was still here. And 
when the bands broke up uh, the UK, especially the you know, Beatles and whatnot, there was enough going on. And there was enough going on between the three musics, not even counting what was happening on the Euro music, uh, classical so-called scene. There was still a lot of innovation going on there. there was a lot of, you know, yeah. and, uh, especially in the 50s and whatnot. Resurgence of surrealism, twelve-tone music in America, and things like this, and then the total opposite, the total throwing it all—you know, total free music like with free jazz in uh, with Hornet and whatnot, and Coltrane in America, uh, John Cage, et cetera, et cetera. So there was so much going on, and in dance, all the, you know, and then of course, as you mentioned, David, in, in painting. I mean, what was happening in painting? So everything was was uh, still very alive. <laughs> yes, and I think there was some it was a classical piece, wasn't there? Was it a New World, which I can't remember the actual composer, but um, it was one of those very optimistic pieces that had the slogan, um, yeah, <laughs> American American Indian sort of quality to it. I can't remember who the composer was now, actually. Mm -hmm. So um, yes, so as the decade, as the 70s progressed and we suddenly, there was obviously that sort of sense that things might be different in some dis in some way. You you sort of this is where you form a band, isn't it? This is the bands sort of coming together. I started forming a, a band called Reverend B. I called it maybe about uh, a year or a little less before we uh, formed Suicide. Uh, and before that, I was playing, whenever possible, gigs, you know, wherever I got one. Yes. So, so, we, uh, so were these bands that were, you know, were they doing original material? Were they doing sort of covers? Oh, yeah. No, I never did covers. <laughs> <laughs> I would have been a lot better off if I did. <laughs> it would have worked a lot more. But um, I started playing, you might say, professionally when I was 15, let's say. So, uh, of course, that's, you know, professionally in, but it is, you know, maybe I made 10 bucks when I was 15, so. And so by the time I started Reverend B, uh, maybe I'm 20, and, uh, and then in between, yes, when we did covers, it was because I got I got gigs to play in bands doing mountain work, hotels. Right. Young bands my age playing for, uh, so that's for the whole summer, for uh, incoming shows that would come in like comedians and acts and dancing for the uh, guests. You know, it was a big thing then. Yeah. So then, of course, you do covers, but they weren't covers that had any history with me. They were like standard songs and whatnot. You know, it was a great training uh, to learn all that stuff, of course. It was important to me. I was already learning it because it was a big part of the, you know, of learning what modern jazz was all about, which intrigued me. Uh, so learning that harmonic sophistication you know it doesn't come overnight so but otherwise uh yeah you know it's like uh when i started doing the, uh, the first band it just kind of came together uh from people i knew 
and uh, it ended up being basically more and more electronic and totally free music, totally improvised free music. Yeah. Electron electronic uh, in the sense that I was starting to almost exclusively play an electric keyboard, electric or electronic, because they weren't, there were less and less other keyboards. You found it convenient when you go to a venue and you had a, a keyboard, like a piano sitting right there waiting for you. And, uh, but it was getting to be uh, less and less the, uh, the, the occasion. So I started borrowing and bringing in, you know, organs, things like that, that I could, and then finding a whole, whole new worlds in that too, with the combination of the uh, improvisation and the rhythm sections. Were you aware of people like Keith Emerson at that stage? Emerson, well, Keith, yeah, I used to see them on TV and I used to go, you know, Genesis, yeah. ELP, because by now it was Midnight Special or they had, they had maybe two a week on the weekend. Oh, they had all those groups. They were already like, you know, a major. And, you know, when I saw them though, I said, no, man. And it always felt that way later. I mean, for me, they were already so developed, they were already so expansive instrumentally, equipment wise, you know. And uh, I was a little more, uh, my vision was a little more laser oriented. Like it was just more pretty much towards for many years, mastering a certain uh, ability on the on the instrument that I chose to do, as opposed to at that point writing songs and singing. And uh, so when I saw all that stuff, I said, "Oh yeah, okay." But I, I didn't get attached to it. Right? I said, "No, that's what I got to do." Yes. I didn't relate to all the equipment or whatnot innately. I didn't, you know, I wasn't uh, a totally. Uh, understood reason why maybe, or I couldn't put it down necessarily, uh, didn't need to. Was the, 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 the sonic soundscape that you were making, was that kind of reflective, reflecting your sort of environment that you were living in, you know, with, in sort of your neighborhood? I think, I think it ultimately was, but I didn't, I didn't uh, consciously say, I'm gonna now reflect my environment. <laughs> <laughs> But you can do. I mean, if you're more of a conceptual artist, can say, okay, here's a train, here's this, anyway, well, this is what I'm going to try to imitate. I mean, Messian would, uh, you know, study and love to try to write the birds into I mean, I could be writing, but I didn't. No. Uh, but I think there's no way in which it couldn't have influenced, I mean, you know, uh, from before suicide. To and and right and certainly into suicide. I mean, all the streets of everything, the trains, man. Every almost every day, the subways. They're so. It's, it's a unique, uniquely uh, geometrically formed uh, environment that's also uh, incredibly dramatic. I mean, the metro, the subways in New York is, is such. It's like all those film noir, early film noir in America coming out of New York because it's such a dramatic uh, element to them. And yeah, I was yeah. taking them since I was, a, you know, a baby pretty much so. Yeah. And, always, and always felt a sense of suspense and great excitement. It was danger being on a subway, especially when you went into Manhattan or out of Manhattan, you know, and at night 
you know, it, it, you know, incredible. And the yeah. sound, of course. And obviously, yeah, I mean, when you're listening to the work of Kraftwerk and also David Bowie's Low album and Station to Station, that particular track, right. it does reflect quite an atmosphere, doesn't it? A sort of, um, yeah, metropolitan, was it the film Metropolitan? Hmm. Oh, the German film. God, I can't remember it now. But, you know, that was a very famous one in yeah. the 1920s. Wasn't yeah, it? yeah. Which like was Kraftwerk, you mean? Or yeah, Kraftwerk. Yeah, there was Kraftwerk. a film that there was kind of, um, which yeah. was quite influenced by. So I just wondered if, you know, when you've listened, when you sort of obviously that, that was only, that was still not for, still to happen, but you obviously were starting to sort of pick up on sort of those, that, that kind of emotional sort of, I was going to say vibration, but it's probably not the right word, is it? But, you know, being able to sort of conjure up how you were feeling into the music and the soundscape that you were going to I don't, I think it was, I think it was happening instinctively. I, I wasn't thinking, oh, I'm going to conjure up though. That's the thing, you know, I don't think I, being born in that environment, I guess, and exposed to it, as an inf constantly, uh, it was uh, just instinctive. Later on, maybe I could philosophize about it. You know, they got a little older, I could say, yeah. And people would say, well, like they, they used to say about Charlie Parker, if he was born in India, would he have created what he did? He played the music and it was never really an answer, except they said he obviously would have created music on the level in which he did, which if you want to call it genius, of course, it, you know, it is, uh, if you use that term, but it wouldn't have sounded the way it did. No. Why? Because he was American and he was exposed to all that, his time and all the sounds and vibrations and the energy, the space too. In America, there's a compression and an angular space of amount of people vis-a-vis uh, height of buildings vis-a-vis -vis the amount of concrete vis-a-vis uh, -vis the uh, amount of cars, traffic, and, and the way that affects sound, all of that. It, it's totally unique. It was especially then too. I mean, London had a similar, some get close to it, and they're all unique in their ways. But Manhattan has a spatial, you say New York, parts of other boroughs too a spatial dynamic matrix, sound and space, angular matrix, combined with people and the way they have to navigate through all of that uh, and do, that's totally, uh, totally one of a kind. Yeah. But the, thing, the interesting thing too that comes to mind is that living in that period in New York, it was, it turns out that it was the center of the arts at that time. It now had become, which I didn't think about then too. I didn't, you know, register that that way till later. But after Paris, I guess before World War II, if one, you know, sees the way it's uh, annotated now, after World War II, America and London, I guess, also being the victors and reaping the <laughs> monetary rewards out of it all, especially the U.S. Uh, <laughs> yeah. In a, in a contrived way in many respects, but um, they became, New York became, for, for many reasons, it also was, a, it was an immigrant city. It was a city built by Europeans and before Europeans, slavery, black labor, 
you know, Hispanic and then European migration. And those groups built the city. Now that cultural mix, that interracial mix too, in New York going on for generations, uh, the writers, uh, the musicians too, that came out of that, the artists, created television, created all the, wrote so many, not just, they were all immigrants, all the, when the Germans, Irish, Italians, Jewish, after the Dutch who brought slaves, 1600s, who then lived as free people, uh, so-called, of course, you know, that's the big major struggle that has never left this generation, this mm. country. And, um, so New York, it all, I think, kind of uh, was an effect of layer upon layer of layer on generations. And now uh, the arts reach a point where they are truly, uh, they blossom out of this soil that was happening all that time. And I think there's no accident why in why uh, punk, uh, came out of New York and uh, almost like, you know, the, the, a later stage of that, why a lot of experimentation and music, uh, painting, abstract expressionism, as I said, the beats, it was all a continuation, one generation after another building on that culture because the, those groups brought in culture, man. The Americans, you know, before that it was, uh, it was in many ways maybe the most cultural because it was American Indian. Yes. You know, but they didn't, they were too, American Indians in some ways are too elevated, you know, in their approach to life, I think, to deal with the, those things of like making art for commercial sake and all this stuff, you know, developing that kind of society. So now we're talking about a whole other very, very, uh, high mindset that doesn't even bother with that stuff. No. Otherwise they would have, but they were, they are the foundation without a doubt too. Absolutely. But then in the seventies as well, and it's obviously been going on for quite a few decades, yeah. especially the fifties and sixties, the mafia had sort of really taken quite a grip to quite a few cities at that time. And they'd, they'd obviously sort of already got into Vegas and Chicago and New York. So there was obviously, you know, there was that side of, American life, especially New York, where you know there was there was you know some serious families there who were sort of controlling various businesses and you know importing a lot of drugs as well. Well, drugs, I I think they their their influence and their hold and their uh, presence was was before the seventies, of course. I mean, we're going back to, of course. Uh, who knows how long, before the 20s, Chicago, New York, uh, all those cities were always, uh, always had what they called an underworld element, which they fostered because the so-called legitimate uh, world, in order to uh, capitalize on certain profit on certain enterprises that were considered Ill, not right and illegal and terrible, of course, to the society at large, uh, need, always needed 
an underworld to provide those things. And people always needed them, to wanted them to provide them too, when the government wouldn't. So they've been a part of every, I think every society, every system, in one way or another since they began. Now, once there was, a, there was I guess, the, a big Sicilian, we're talking about, might say, the syndicate, Costa <laughs> Nostra, there was a big Sicilian immigration. And that did bring in, because that was the way of life and to survive. Italians were incredibly, uh, they said they used to, there was lynchings of Italians in Italy. I mean, Italians were, were also a very uh, unwanted, unliked species by all the one people who were here already, German and Irish, basically. The Irish were to the Germans. Now, you know, they fought, they had their mafia to fight in, to get a piece of the pie, you know, to survive under the Germans. Then the Italians came in, they both hated the Italians, didn't want them getting into their pie. And eventually, you know, but the Italians came with the with with a, 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 an, or, an organizational uh, uh, strategy that had been going on for generations and generations out of Sicily. Mm. So when they they came in and they set up when they had to, not every Italian, of course, but they knew how to set up their their dynamic matrix. If they, you know, to survive, if they weren't going to be embraced into the system, otherwise, which nobody was who first came in. So, man, they were in, uh, you know, you read about uh, Chicago, Al Capone in Chicago in the 30s, right? Some, uh, uh, 30s, 40s, 20s. You had in LA, you had a big, you had mob, you had everywhere. Brooklyn, New York had big, uh, very famous now, <laughs> pictures, movies about the uh, so-called gangsters. I mean, they were, you know, yeah. uh, that had their, that had their syndicates, and uh, so there was always that element. Seventies, um, maybe it became more predominant. I mean, it was certainly they were always changing too. Their their dynamic and exposure, I guess, also based on. Uh, the way the government responds to them, how they have to deal with new laws, new technology, new, you know, new money. They certainly got richer and richer and probably bigger and bigger in time in terms of permeating through the uh, society at large in terms of businesses, learning how to deal even more and more with tax codes and all this stuff. But uh, yeah, that's always been a presence. I mean. Most of the clubs, and you could see it as we started playing, uh, were all pretty much connected in some way. And somebody once told me you can't have a restaurant or a club, especially if they start doing a little business in New York, uh, if you're not taken, or if you're not part of the mob, there's not a mob, it's not control, at least a piece. Right. They'll take it for because they walk in on it. Now the whole the whole jukebox industry was controlled that way, you know. And that was we going back to the fifties. The record industry is an was an incredibly. I heard from people who were who were in it was always the distribution part. <laughs> Man, that was you know that was a controlled thing. Really. 
Yes, absolutely. That way. That was amazing. So look, as we as we truck through the seventies, that was been right. Let's get back to the seventies. <laughs> okay. So as, as that decade was changing quite a lot, because obviously in the UK, you know, there was like we were always changing the government in this period. You know, there was Labour, Conservative, you know, lots of strikes. You know, three day weeks, all that right. kind of stuff that was happening, and a lot of you know things weren't going terribly well. People thought there was going to be a revolution. Some people even thought they needed to sort of start to form a small army. They were the members of the far kind of right, not the far right, but just, you know, people who, the aristocracy basically. So when, when you were sort of, when the band formed with you and Alan, did you, did it sort of, did you get a kind of a manifesto? Did you feel like you were on a mission at this stage? I think uh, we were both very much on a mission, but it was artistic mission, as it had been before we met. It was a mission to, to continually live as and develop and create and live creating as we had been doing, find a way to survive and live with the love of the, the creative enterprise we were each in individually. And the one conscious mission that came out early enough was part of that. And it always had been for, for, for us in one way or another too, although I wasn't performing artist before that but I'm sure it was similar for me. It was always that way too, in the sense that performing, playing, of course, getting exposure, hopefully getting a record deal at some point was a way to facilitate surviving as a creative artist, you know? Yes. So that was the, that was the hype. It doesn't matter how much money you're making, but if you can live on your, on your shit, man, on your work, playing for me, it was a matter of playing, uh, that was uh, the goal. That was always the manifesto, you know, without even unspoken. But at some point it was spoken because we said, hey, yeah, we're going to put, all right, we'll put this group together. Let's get it. Let's get it out there. Let's see we can, where we can play. Let's find places to play. Of course, it was always, you know, that, that element. Yes. And you had, you had, um, was it CBGB's had that started in Max's Kansas City? Those were a little later. Those were, uh, and for us especially, Max has had two incarnations. The first one was was pretty much uh, connected to the hip with the pop art movement uh, and the art movement, which is now we're going a little before my time in the sense that I'm coming in now uh, and suicides coming in with a, almost a generation after, almost a reaction to that. So CBGB's uh, didn't come, become that club CBGB's. It was a bar, it was there for many years apparently before I knew about it. Uh, empty pretty much, you know. It was Hilly's home, I think for many, you know, he lived in the back. Yeah. The Hell's Angels, um, populated it sparsely. If you walked in in the afternoon, you might see three people there in the afternoon. You get a beer at the bar and, you know, it's a long, empty place, but, you know, Billy lived there with his, you know, dogs. Apparently he was a big promoter, I think, with Don Schaefer previously, a major promoter. He was also doing one of the TV shows yeah. in the 60s and, and decided to leave the whole, that whole business walked away from it 
and came almost a recluse in a sense, got brought up CBGBs, the space, and lived in the back. So that was a little later. We're talking about now maybe mid-70s. Early 70s, you had a transition, a limbo period. And what filled that up, the important places, was like Mercer Arts Center. And before that were various lofts, galleries. Alan and I first did, our first shows were Ivan Karp's OK Harris, because Alan was starting to show there. Um, at group shows and and wherever we could find, I found a gig at the Village Vanguard in the afternoon, which was incredible because they started matinees there. Huh. And uh, I knew Max Gordon because I'd been hanging out there since I was a kid. You know, he knew me. He took a chance. He didn't. He was reluctant, but he took a chance to put us on suicide in the afternoon at the Village Vanguard. I mean, it's, so places were opening and closing. Uh, and sometimes there were lofts, there were, there were galleries, maybe little galleries, and maybe Alan would walk in and say, we'd like to play here. And so we'd get gigs wherever we could. Later on, uh, Max's clothes, on, when Mickey Russell had Max's, we could hardly even go and hang out because they, you know, they, they carded people. We were not their type at all, you know, when they saw us. You know, you know, we were not going to get in. We were too, we were something, we were coming from too, too, too close to the street for them. So we did get a couple of showcases right at the, uh, right before they closed, about the year before they closed, managed through their booking agent upstairs. It wasn't easy to get first one, a showcase, and then another. And, uh, but they were on their closing leg already. And when Mickey Ruskin gave up the club, that was another year, year and a half of limbo in the city, mm. no clubs. So my understanding is that's when people like Richard Lloyd from television, uh, people were looking to play, they play this uh, truck and warehouse theater that's on 4th Street where Rent started, the big play Rent. You know, you'd find whatever space you could, little clubs, Mothers was one, was a little club, with Peter Crowley who ended up booking Max's in the 70s. Right, yeah. He started, not started, but he was booking there when I come to reconnaissance of him. And, uh, you know, they walked over to Hilly and Hilly was just starting to, uh, the big the story I heard Richard tell it was <laughs> at his tribute at Hilly's. Sounds like Jesus and one of the disciples, or, you know, Hilly was on a ladder now painting CBGBs on his awning because he's planning to open up a country and bluegrass bar. This is country, blues, and bluegrass, CB. Yeah. GB, so it's country, bluegrass, blues. <laughs> and uh, so Richard walks by. Everybody's looking for shows. Your television is, they had all these bands then who were playing on the outskirts, though, rehearsing, looking for, because you had the dolls who already came through the first maxes, the end of it, but, you know, when it was still, because they were embraced, they were embraced by the pop-up movement too. So they were, they came through at that time. Uh, and everybody else, all the other bands in New York, you never who knew they were, they were all rehearsing however they could play, wherever they could. So television was one. So Richard came by and he said, man, oh, what are you doing? He said, oh, we're opening up a club here. 
Richard says, I want to let us play here, man. And so Hilly's up on the ladder painting and Richard's down looking up, you know, it's like a <laughs> biblical scene. Right? And Hilly says, no, he says, what do you do? And I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but Richard said, no, we play punk, something we play this music around. Hilly said then, or he said then too, but he said later too, he always said, I hated punk. I didn't like punk at all. I hated it. Uh, Richard was persistent enough, and Hilly is open enough and sensitive enough, at some point gave in. He said, okay, I'll let you come in, uh, whatever, two weeks from now, and you'll play on a weekday night. And that's how CBGB started. I think it was, I think that was in between the closing of, uh, but it didn't really take off until uh, uh, after the second Maxis opened, after it reopened under new management. Yeah. And uh, the scene started getting some press attention after having totally a local scene of all art. Everybody knew the Conocenti, everybody knew it wasn't the pop art crowd anymore, though it was a new, the next crowd. The writers, musicians, dancers, everyone was, you know, next generation. And and now you had Blondie and all these groups too were starting to, you know, and then the press started walking in. And before that, Punk magazine with John Holstrom and Legs McNeil, uh, as journalists writing about it now and and uh, coining the word punk to describe it. Yeah. You know, even though we were we were using it was being used before, but in, uh, you know, they established it in, in textually. <laughs> and then the press had something to hook onto and they had all these groups. Now CBs is getting, starting to learn how they want to book, rotating and constantly in Maxis is rotating under the new Maxis, see? So yeah. Tommy Dean, who was a proprietor of the next Maxis, because the club had to open up under somebody and that was more of a New York, you know, group of people of you know business people from New York, Brooklyn, Queens. It wasn't like uh, before when it was more of an independent uh, entrepreneur, a very uh, special entrepreneur that had his own crowd brought in people. Now you had uh, another mentality altogether. And Tommy Dean said at one point, apparently he asked somebody, I want to get this new music around this new scene that's around new bands how do i get them in here oh it's already progressive idea somebody said get peter crowley oh, okay who's peter crowley oh, i called him up peter crowley's booking mothers who actually booked us maybe six months before so and uh peter comes in but it turns out peter has such an acumen of the arts already he's such a brilliant guy and already had as a young guy he already had a history in living theater he was involved in touring with all kinds of theater companies light companies doing a light us and he knew the scene already backwards and forwards and he knew exactly how to present it so max starts becoming the the uh, that and then and cbs at the same time becoming the eight, two apex of the uh, scene in new york Yes. Talking about yes. 75 or so, end of 74 or 5. And by then, with Suicide, what, had you sort of started to build up quite a following? Because by the time you 
the album comes, you start to record the album, you sort of get, is it Craig Lennon who uh, right. produced it? Craig, Craig, CV is phenomenal, isn't it? I mean, Craig Leon. Leon, sorry. Right. Well, that's already uh, 70, summer of 77, but the, uh, the essential thing leading up to that was Marty Thau, Martin Thau, who was uh, also walked away from a very successful, as a young man right out of school, he worked for Morris Levy, people who became, who had a big history in music business, Roulette Records, Birdland, all this stuff. I had never heard of, of course, at that time, it was before my generation. Then Morris Levy now opens up soon, Buddha Records, later, Kama Sutra, you know, big name in the record business, you might say. And they took Marty Thau uh, out of, right out of NYU college and made him a promotional man. The guy who is uh, gonna take the records and take them around to DJs, which you could still do yes. around the country and get DJs to play them. Payola wasn't yet illegal. I don't think when he started. So now when we meet Marty, Marty becomes uh, a couple of years later, apparently going to look at his history. He's, he's interviewing some of these studies too. He leaves the whole thing at some point. I mean, it got to the point where he came home one time in Westchester and there was a Rolls Royce sitting outside his place. He said to his wife, where did this come from? He said, oh, Morris, the label left it for you as a, as a bonus present for you know, <laughs> as it's selling, you know, pushing a certain amount of sales or whatever, a gold, like a Rolls Royce. So Marty was responsible for like question mark and Mysterians record. Yeah. Real commercial groups like uh, Sugar Sugar, the Archies, Sugar Sugar hits, work with Van Morrison, work with all these. When I first met him in his apartment, man, he had all these gold records everywhere, you know, that he got for the promotional end. Marty, who ended up, who, after, he, after he exiled himself from the music business, he stepped right off it. He says, I don't want to be that anymore. I don't want to be a record executive like these guys. I want to be an independent, I want to you know, be a maverick, I guess. So he gets a pad. He also, at the time, I think, leaves his, like, are we going too long on this? Because no, no, that's fine, that's fine. <laughs> he gets a, a, drops out of his, marriage too, his relationship, Westchester. I gotta be in New York, I gotta be on this scene. Gets, it a, gets a flat, gets an apartment, starts going to the clubs. Now he's really the only one now in the record business, the world that's already established, that knows what's really going on because they're not going to the clubs to check it out. They're still very involved in what had already, what the status quo was, which was the 60s. Mm. Starting to, of course, had been fading out with uh, you mentioned with Janice and Jimmy Germano, you know, so that whole scene was going, but there was nothing taking its place, and they weren't coming down to that level. Marty was as an now he was an independent maverick, uh, whatever he could do, producer and manager. So his first uh, one of his early things, his early uh, involvements was uh, he worked with the Ramones very early too. But even before that, I think after maybe Van Morrison here and there, the Dolls. Marty was 
the manager of the Dolls, and hooked up with Lieber Stoller, I think, or Lieber Krebs, who now, you know, songwriters from the early, from the 50s, early 60s, who now are very successful, very successful management companies and production company. And they formed some kind of a partnership and they got the Dolls signed eventually. Then he went into, then he went to Blondie, got Blondie, they signed, got Blondie signed to Chrysalis. So Marty, when we went into him uh, at the Mercer Arts Center, where he was arranging sometimes Dolls gigs, because Dolls play there quite often. He was aware of us, apparently, and he, uh, he, he, threw, a, he threw a Halloween event one, one night at the Mercer Arts Center, which was about 20 bands from the scene playing all night, plus the Dolls. And he actually asked us to do it, knowing we were part of it, you know. And we went on at something like three in the morning or something, you know. It was such, uh, Marty uh, admits later, that was maybe like 72, and it wasn't until 77, actually, the beginning of 77, that he approaches us to manage us. So what he what he what he says in an interview, like with Chris Knees and whatnot, because he heard this single, he said, "I never thought they could make a record." He said, "I thought they were incredibly, incredibly, you know, off the the map. They were like incredible. They were just incredible, but they can never make a record." Marty was coming from that orientation, the record record man. Yeah, yeah. So he heard. Uh, Rocket USA and Keep Your Dreams, which we put on the, uh, we were able to cut ourselves and put on the jukebox of Max's around the end of 76, beginning of 77. They let us do it. After hearing, I heard television did it first, did a Johnny Jewel, you know, self-made records. Yeah. And they did it. Peter said, okay, you can do it. Tommy said, ask Peter. Peter said, okay, we opened the jukebox. So I went and cut the record, two copies, Threw one on the next day, the next that night it was playing. And apparently, uh, Marty was in because it was also a restaurant, Max's one. Marty was in one night having dinner, and he hears this record come on. He asked somebody, Who is this? And he said, uh, by now he's already worked with the Heartbreakers, Ramones, all these, you know, he's always looking for groups, always looking for involvement. They said, It's suicide. He said, Suicide. Man, I never thought they could make a record like that's a that's like a record. The next day, he calls us and he he, he asks if he can meet under the guise of managing us. So uh, that comes, and then through Marty, uh, he tries to get us uh, signed by several labels. Beginning of '77, had us do an audition for uh, Mercury. Uh, talk to this label and that. Couldn't get us anywhere. It was, you know, way too far out still, because whatever. And the name, the name was always, even to this day. But uh, another very uh, synchronicitous event took place where a label came in. Now they were a disco label, but they were started by two veterans of the 50s and 60s music industry. Scepter records, all these had all these hits, these rock and roll hits. 
and they and they had an office now up in Fifty uh, Seventh Street, and they were asking around because now they had this disco label they had a couple of hits, disco hits. But they said uh, Stan Hoffman and 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 Schlachter, uh, yeah, Phil Schlachter. I think. Well, forgive me, Phil, if I'm. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that's you know. And uh, who can we? Get? We want to get this. There's a new scene out downtown. You know, man. Let's. We should bring them in because those are rock and roll guys too, essentially. And. Uh, who can we get? So somebody tells him, call Marty Thau. He's the one that's on that scene. He knows. I don't even, they probably heard of Marty Thau too, because they're all in a, close enough in the business some point, but they didn't know him personally. They mm -hmm. called Marty Thau up and they said, listen, we'd like to start this label of that scene. Can you do it? You'll be the president of the label. We'll give you an office, because they had a big like suite of offices on 57th Street near Carnegie Hall. You'll have your own label, you call it what you want, you sign who you want, bring, just bring them in, Will's finance it. So now Marty gets this about, maybe he approached us around February, we're not going anywhere, but we're playing gigs. He gets us, you know, we did four nights, uh, backing with, with Blondie at CBGB's. We play with the Ramones here and there, before and after this, we did those things, but. Now, all of a sudden, by maybe May or end of April, he's got this label. They're giving him a label. So he comes and tells us, man, I've got the label, man. You're going to be the first record. Let's, let's make an album. So now it's just a matter of the conversation was, who do we, who do we get to? How do we put this together? It wasn't even a conversation. Marty knew Craig Leon very well from the past. Uh, who do we get to produce this? He didn't. Ask us. We didn't really have preference. We didn't. You know, we weren't into producers then. We were into doing what we did. You know. Uh, Marty said, "What do you think about Craig Leon as a producer?" One night he said, "They're fine." I didn't know. I didn't know of Craig Leon. Alan didn't know of Craig Leon. You know, that's how far we went into that side of the business. Uh, Crayon, Craig, it turns out, of course, was a composer too. And, Yeah, go ahead, Craig Leon. So Craig Leon becomes the producer, set up the studio. And then at some point during the project, Craig has to leave because of other commitments. It was either going too long or he had to leave at least temporarily. Uh, so after most of, most of the tracks, at least the first takes, first mixes were already down. Marty says, comes to us again, maybe the next day, says, yeah, we were thinking, who do, who do you get to for a producer? He's trying to think of. He says, hey, listen, I've never produced a record before, but what do you think if I produce it? I'm thinking I'll just produce it. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah Marty, sure, do it, man. Okay, yeah. Got the engineer, this guy, Larry Alexander, who uh, was a very well-versed engineer, you know, who could sit by and kind of keep him under wing to an extent. <laughs> and uh, which needed to be done, apparently, at least according to Larry, but uh, <laughs> according to the studio, text, stats, you know. And Marty, so Marty finishes up the record. We retake a lot of stuff. We use what we had laid down, what Craig had really set up and leveled and dynamicized. And uh, 
Yeah, and Craig Leon. So that number we're talking about now is summer of 77. So before that, though, the only record, the re, not the only, but the real significant recording first was Max's Kansas City opens a label. I'm sure Matt, Peter and Tommy thought it was a great idea. And Peter became the, the president, you might say, of that label to organize the groups into a compilation. So Max uh, starts a, a label, Ram Records. I think it was around the, somewhere in 76. Pretty sure, maybe middle of 76. And he bring up, he signed all these groups, very modestly, of course, but everybody was thrilled. I mean, you know, to bring in a tape, not to record anybody, but you know, just tape your own stuff, which we had been doing anyway, in this little reel-to-reel from -reel reverse. He brought in two tracks. And that was our first recording, man. The live at Max's Kansas City. You know, it's still out. It's been reissued. It's, it's in uh, I think Jungle Records has it now. And uh, a year later, it was the Suicide Record. And that got a lot of good press in it, in the UK, and it's been in the UK. Yeah, in the UK, <laughs> not not in the US, but uh, UK was incredibly uh, sophisticated. France also in there, in there. I mean, Melody Maker and uh, Sounds, those papers and whatnot. Yeah, NME, probably. NME. I mean, yeah. the reviews, the way, not just the reviews, but also the way some of the authors uh, described, used the references that they heard in the music. You know, they used all kinds of stuff. I never thought, I mean, jazz stuff that I never was conscious of using. You know, he really went deep into it. That's what, you know. And of course, France was always that way with uh, stuff they they recognize as art. I mean, they're the first to really embrace jazz outside of the US. You know? So while New York was still became the center of the arts and all the artists, all the dynamics were there now, all the dancers, poets, painters, everybody, all the jazz musicians came to New York. Everybody who was born elsewhere, of course, came in. But Europe still had the, uh, the mind for it, you know. Yeah, absolutely. And did, and did it feel like there was some sort of launch of the band at this stage, the two of you, or did it did the mixed reviews in America sort of slightly dampen the spirits? No, they, it, well, we got one. Is it Roy Hollingsworth? Yeah, there was one from Mercer Arts Center quite early. It's still somewhere online. We came into Mercer Arts Center again, uh, and he was reviewing some of the bands for NME. And he heard Suicide. He never heard of us, and he heard us for the first time, you know, playing one of the rooms. Mercer Arts Center had like five, six theaters going all at the same time, small ones. And he wrote this incredible review that came out of NME, the first any kind of real positive review in the States, but it's coming from. From Roy, Roy and uh, it Roy Hollingsworth. Shit, was he a producer? Yeah. All right, I'll have to. In any case, he said, "What the headline was? What has rock given birth to?" And he describes us in such detail of what we look like, what the what we did, what the ambient, what we gave off. 
you know, but that was the UK again. Yes. So after that, uh, it never really dampened. I mean, you get used to, I mean, if your spirits were going to be dampened, which they always can be and always are temporarily, they would have been, uh, if it was significant, it would have stopped us years ago, individually, you know, as artists. And, you know, so, I mean, Rolling Stone wrote one of the worst reviews they could write of anybody. And, you know, but who expected a good review at a Rolling Stone? We weren't the establishment, man. We were like, you know, we were like Che and Fidel <laughs> coming in on the establishment. You can't expect them to embrace you. No, absolutely, you know? absolutely. But then you you sort of, you, you go to the records next, which is much more, is that more of a spiritual home for you? You know, changing labels. Yeah. Leave what, David? Um, Z Records. You went to Z Records next? Did your next... Well, that was a process that happened. Of course, we got we were on Red Star, but Howard Thompson is a pivotal uh, key now between how we got signed to Braun, which was a UK company. This Red Star was looking for, of course, European distribution worldwide. And uh, Howard's story is incredibly interesting too, which I never realized until until I read his reviews later, his interviews. But uh, no, it is Roy Hollingsworth. Just kidding. I was thinking Roy Thomas Baker is a producer. He used to produce uh, cars a lot. So Howard is very pivotal here and key. And I can try to briefly give his <laughs> role too, if you if you'd like. But otherwise, yes. So Howard Thompson. Howard Thompson from Braun Records. Yes. Worked under the head of Braun Records, which is called David Better. His name was David Betteridge. It was an independent label out of the UK. Uh, doing quite well, I believe. So Howard, this is like his first gig out of school too, or something like that. Is the an A and R man for him. But he has good friends in America and New York who are sending him records all the time. He wants to hear what's coming out of the States. So one day, as he tells it, he opens this envelope. Now, David's on the phone making some kind of business arrangement with someone, long distance or whatever. Um, And uh, Howard is opening up a package. He guys, he's from the States, like a large vinyl size envelope. Opens it up and he sees this record, Suicide. Oh, that, right away, he says, oh, that's right away. <laughs> Grabs him. And it's curiosity. He puts it on. And he starts playing it. And it gets, he's playing it. And he's going, holy shit, man. And it, I don't think he started with, but he, I think he, he probably started with Frankie Teardrop because, you know, it's the first, no, it's, Second track, maybe a first track on the second side, I believe. And now David's saying, Wait a minute, what's going on? He's trying to, he can't hear the guy, you know, and he's like, that he's talking to, and it's getting louder and louder, and the screams are coming in, and it's building up. And how it's just like mesmerized, he said. Well, this right. David gets off the phone when he does. Howard says, Listen, I got to go to New York. You got to book me to New York. I got to sign these guys. That's, that's how it's. Uh, story how this happened I mean yeah so Howard comes in 
books a ticket in, meets with Marty Thanos, sits down with him, uh, meets with us a little bit. We said he was incredibly, almost terrified or very apprehensive about meeting us. And uh, he, he signs us to Braun Records. Maybe he has one show. And they start setting up a, a tour, prospective tour, which was going to be this summer. The record was coming out in the States. It came out in the States the end of 77. And the summer of 78 was going to be our European tour. Uh, two months and a half, it turned out to be. Mm -hmm. And they were going to book the whole thing. It was my first time in Europe altogether. So that's how it's rolled, man. And, and then before Z, that came a little later because uh, after the tour and whatnot, we had a little discrepancy with the, um, we, we recorded some singles for, with Marty, Dream Baby Dream, with Rick producing, which was Marty's idea in the studio. But we were optioned to do another album within a certain amount of time. Marty didn't pick it up. And he was trying, and he's, now he's doing other groups too, Flesh Tones, Real Kids. So at the same time, at some point, we were approached. We were in California actually doing the Midnight Special taping with the Cars. So Cars already became very big aficionados of us and supporters. Mm. And now they, they blew up. They were, you know, you know what happened to the car. So, and uh, we were taping this midnight special. I mean, we're on TV with the midnight, I and mean, that's incredible too, you know. But while Alan and Marty went back to New York, there was like a two week break, and I stayed out in California. Alan was approached by Michael Zilker of Z and said, Listen, I would like to make an album with you guys. What do you think? So that starts to take progress. Eventually, it eases out of Red Star. Marty sells uh, Michael the rights to Dream Baby Dream and Radiation. And it was decided that uh, Rick would produce the album. <coughs> so that's the second album. That's maybe uh, end of 79. And we recorded it at the beginning of 80. Yes. That is yeah. it, the end yeah. of a decade and the start of the next one. Yeah. And was it quite a different experience uh, working with Rick from the cars? Well, yeah, because now we're, uh, we're in Power Station, which is a tremendously grand studio, which is next door, Carly Simon, Diana Ross has been there. Niall Rogers has art producer in residency where he's bringing in over a year or something, all these groups. Uh, and then Springsteen is recording. But not just that, we were in, I was in a, we were in a tremendous space, a recording space, performing room with the control room way in the rear. We did, we did the first album, you know, everything was a lot closer. Uh, but the music was, it was a different time, it was new technology, and Rick had ideas that he wanted to propose to see if I would go for them, especially as the instrumentation was concerned. So he proposed, he said, listen, there's all these new instruments around. There's this one, there's this one, there's this one, there's this one. Do you want us to bring that, you know, you want to use that stuff? And I said, yeah, bring it in, man, you know. So it was for me, now it was, uh, 
taking a lot of new stuff with new colors, a new palette, you might say, mm. and really exploring them. And it was, it was, you know, very fresh. And uh, a very fresh kind of a palette, man. So laying down the canvas that way. And we did it separately this time. The first album we, we did as a live album. We cut it live, Alan and I together. And then any changes or things added after we do, but already we cut the album in like the time of the album, 35 minutes or whatever, 40 minutes. But this one was done separately like most albums were being done then. Rick was already an experienced, of course, uh, also stu student of producing, having been produced by Roy Thomas Baker and you know, starting to produce himself. So, which he did from, which he did, of course, as a career later. And uh, he did it that, you know, he did it his way, man. You know, we did that way. I didn't mind at all. Because although all this sounds, so yeah, let me, I would do track after track after track, just hearing what was possible. You know, Rick said, that's great, man. Don't want to lay down another one? He said, yeah, let's try this, let's try this. Every sound, you know, every button, it's like a new world. At that time, Prophet 5 just came out, you know. Yes. So, so that was uh, that was the Z experience, you know, the Z record experience. Michael's orientation was totally different too. Michael came from a wholly different culture in many respects. Uh, personally too, he Michael liked discos. You know, he was he lived a different kind of life, different generation, and uh, economically cultural person than Marty Thau. So his orientation towards promoting the album, how he'd like it to sell, you know, uh, was different too. And uh, it did what it, you know, it went, it went where it was gonna go, you know? Cause Marty was no longer, we would have done the second album with Marty, uh, but he kind of let it slip. Actually Marty's idea first was to do a solo album of mine right after the first Suicide album, he said, I want to do a solo record with you. And uh, this was within the contract. And Alan said, this is crazy. You can't, you know, it's too soon, which in many respects, it is kind of soon. But in many respects, it didn't have to be because you don't have to break up the group. It was a different, it was a different time span than usually, you know, going on a solo and leaving a group. It's usually the end of a group, right? Yeah. But it doesn't also have to be because of the nature of what we do. Plus, we're talking about doing an instrumental record. But in any case, it was a it was a big departure right after the first album, which had was really gathering steam. Yes. And then you have quite the break. I mean, the 80s comes along, which has got a huge amount of change, especially in the UK. I mean, you know, we had the, I suppose there was the synth pop world of people like Depeche Mode, and then there was the new romantic movement, yeah. and there was that kind of a bit of a jazz scene going on as well with people like Sade, and then Trevor Horn, that Trevor Horn production sound as well, which was the kind 80s. Of that 80s sound, and then you had the indie pop charts as well, which we had in the yeah. UK. Obviously, you have in LA hair metal, which is exciting, but then you you sort of you come back in '88, don't you, with a with a band again, or the two of you actually, isn't it? Yeah, we come back, we do some solo things in between. Uh, we never formally broke up. Uh, we just 
the, the business for us was just not there. Plus we got involved in solo thinking and uh, there was nothing there. The scene, New York now, Max's is clo closed. C CBGB's is, is open, but it's now it's an ongoing, very successful place that's almost a tourist too, but CBGB's was never our, as much of our uh, home base as Max's was. What about uh, the Mud Club? Although we played there many times. Uh, Mud Club, we did some shows there in the 80s, yes. And other clubs that came uh, in and out temporarily, or Rock Lounge, uh, there were a slew of them. Lofts uh, would open up as clubs. And uh, Chase, a club called Chase, right on the big corner on Broadway and Houston Street for people who know the area, uh, big loft. So there were, there were gigs that would come up, but as far as uh, recording and, you know, it wasn't there after the second album and then Z closed soon after. Alan, Alan does a record with Z and then Z, Michael gives up Z. So now there's nothing really out there. And we didn't have a, excuse me, we didn't have a manager. We never really did after Marty Thau. Yeah. And we never had a label that did more than one record. You know, so uh, it was a space, a big space. And uh, we were very active in it. You know, Alan had a pretty extensive solo performing career. I had, you know, was working on what my vision was, was manifested in Clouds of Glory and, uh, and soon after some of the other records. And of course, uh, the first solo album, which came out of 1982, you know, very early 80. I'm gonna take one break, David, real quick. Yes, no problem. Huh? No <laughs> yes. problem. I just wanna put something in my system a little bit. Because I'm, I'm basically on one really good, powerful drink so far, but I like to, you know. No problem. All right, thank you. No problem. Yes. So when you came back to do A Way of Life, which is the third studio album, um, what was the kind of moment that, uh, when you decided to reconvene and, and to uh, go back into the studio and try and uh, write some new material? I think what it basically come down, came down to was Rick now had moved to New York, Rick Ocasek, <coughs> and uh, had a studio in his basement, in his brownstone, he had a house downtown. He's recording and producing himself and others. And he just approached us one day. He said, hey, guys, it's time to make a record. You haven't made a record in a while. Let's make, a, let's make the next record. Come down, whenever it was, next week, tomorrow. And that was Way of Life. That was the, I'm sorry, that was the next record. That was uh, the one after Way of Life. Way of Life was, yes, Rick saying to us, it's time to make a record, but now Rick has a residency in uh, Jimi Hendrix's original studio. Right. You know, 
yeah. Electric Ladyland, which Jimmy started. And uh, he, he was bringing in groups there and like Niall Rogers had been doing, the power station. So he brought us into Electric Ladyland. We recorded most of everything uh, up to a point. Then Rick had to leave. Uh, I think he had to go on travel and some commitments. We didn't get back to it until whatever it was, it was a long time, maybe six, eight months later, he called us in again. Now he had another studio. It was the same studio, but it was a different room, a smaller room, I think, in the literature And we finished it then. We finished it there. And uh, then somewhere through that, uh, we got approached or we, we found through showing it was available, a music disc, I believe it was, in France and a, and a label in the UK, the chapter 11 or something like that. Yeah. Or chapter 12, I think they were called. Yeah, oh, we started oh. getting signed by uh, various labels in part, in peace. And uh, so it came out that way. Were you finding that you'd become quite the um, cool cult band? But, um, you know, they always use that. I don't know. I never thought of, you know, I, I've heard that. I heard that just the other day. You know, someone was writing and said, yeah, cult band, but I never thought of it. I mean, a cult always reminds me of some kind of very closed, cloistered kind of a secretive, you know, group of followers that don't even want to be anywhere, you know, and just kind of feed on themselves. You know, I just never, I never thought of cults. I mean, you, you just, just thought we, we were in a place based on where we were. Yeah. Based on vis-a-vis -vis what you do, it's almost like a, you know, an equation. What you do based on where the environment, the, the social, the society, culture is at the time you're doing it, where their mindset is, where they are as far as art, what the business side is, what they're holding on to and not letting in, and what you're doing. And all that has a combination that equates into a position you're in, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So I think you know, people who like this, yeah. I mean, I wouldn't call them, maybe, maybe they like to call themselves cultists, that's fine. But. Yes, well, I, was, <laughs> I think it's something that, that when you're a bit arty, you quite like using that word. Yeah, it's but probably, then, probably but correct. Then, but then in that period, there was this sort of, in, in the UK especially, there was this kind of explosion of ecstasy started to appear. And so people started getting into much more electronic music and dance music. So obviously your, your sort of general vibe would have started to pick up on that kind of world that is people like people like the all, you know, there's that ambient scene that's going on. And you're, you're, you've got a very sort of- People like, who was the group you mentioned, David? The people all, like- The all, yeah, yeah. you know, I don't know if you remember the little fluffy clouds. Yeah. And, you, and there's also David, um, David Lynch films that were starting to appear and Twin Peaks and this kind of, I don't know right. if you can remember those soundtracks, but your your sort of music has started to have that kind of very cinematic quality, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, it does right to the to the general ear, right? But I always felt electronics. I mean, the first time I tapped into them as a player, that was the future, man. It was a whole new open frontier, man, of un of unknowns to explore. It was incredible. Uh, at least to me, and uh, eventually, but it was the future in many respects. 
also in uh, European music it became in many respects, not the, the only future. Uh, but certainly rock was always elect electronic, electric anyway, to a great extent. So uh, that period would just took a little time and groups like uh, Soft Cell, of course, who, who very uh, clearly said, which we're trying to look, this is the group we want to. So they, they even, you know, turns out that David, I believe, was there and said to the producer for the first record, played him, brought in a suicide second record, and said, This is what we want to sound like. You know? Right. But then we had people like Depeche Mode who were on moot records and they were, they became enormous, didn't they? And they're, yeah. And they have a sort of a, a musicality and a sonic quality that, that gets better with time. So I'd imagine, you right. Know, when you went in to record Why Be Blue, there, this was now going to be on Mute Records, wasn't it? That was later. Mute bought those records later as reissues, although obviously they were in many ways like first records when, when Mute put them out, because even when they bought, they took the first record, first Suicide record as a reissue. Right. Uh, in like 98, it came out with that. And the way Paul Smith, was behind all of that. And it, it, it came out like it's a new record because now it had the promotion and the response now, like a whole new generation of response. So Why Be Blue was, uh, again, it was those European, first those smaller labels, independence, music, music disc was a fairly large independent in France. And, uh, I don't know where else, I guess there were other labels in other territories, I forget at the moment. And it kind of came out that way. It got out enough. I don't know if we ever had a US uh, distributor actually, but, but. Um... And were your, and were your sort yeah. of live right. shows and, and, and your fans, were, they, were you getting a bit more of a committed following at this stage? Committed in one way or another. <laughs> We're ready to commit us. <laughs> There's no doubt uh, we had, you know, there were there may be more people, you might say, uh, that already knew of us and came to hear us. You know, like when you headline a show, now usually people are coming out to hear you because they know of you or they're curious, but. Yes. Uh, so it's a little less from those people of the kind of reaction you might have gotten all those years when you're opening up, well, nobody knows you. And all of a sudden they're hit broadside by, this, it seems to be to them by this unknown or ununderstandable entity, which they seem to react to in those ways in which they did, the ones that did. Uh, so yeah, it was, I mean, I guess by the time now you have, uh, the third album coming out and we've been around, you know, enough journalism and enough, uh, you know, exposure that way. It was, uh, some, I guess, were, uh, you might say, uh, if not more committed, definitely uh, accessible, open. And, mm. uh, and, um, and maybe some, some started to become maybe more committed too, because they realized this is something they want to tat, you know, they realize it's something important for them. You have new new generations coming in all the time, maybe seven years or something, eight years. 
Yeah, I noticed that there's, there's this kind of a wave of, I suppose you get this next wave of 16 to 18 year olds who come along and they kind of want their soundtrack and they don't really want the person's yeah. heroes and music that, that was around five years before. They, they want something completely new. So, was, so, so in 92, when you, when you brought out um, Whitey Blue, did that, feel, did that feel like that you were sort of on a roll still or when you were re recording that, did it feel like- You know what? Go ahead, finish your thought because I, I just- I was gonna say, or did it feel like you were sort of completing that project and, and that, that chapter of your partnership at that stage? Okay, hold that question because this is going to, you're gonna love this as a editor or when <laughs> you put this together. I was talking of actually, why be blue is the record is correctly way of life. Everything I've said so far is relating to way of life, which came before why be blue, which were, were, were Rick uh, recorded. We recorded with Rick in electric lady land and everything I said, yeah. that's way of life. Okay. So you were correct at the time going right to why be blue, but that's already comes right. 92 or so. That's a whole different story. Why Be Blue again is Rick coming saying, okay, we haven't done a record in a couple of years. Now maybe it's four or five. Let's do a record. Now I'm in New York. I have a studio, my own studio. So we record that in Rick's basement. And um, the cool thing about that is, in a way, Rick now is working more independently, of course, from the cars. And he had his manager was also the manager of Bob Dylan, Tom Petty, people like this. They were very close to Seymour Stein and Sire Records. He said, I'm gonna take this after we did it, did it for a while, recording. I'm gonna take this to them, let them, let them handle it this time. Cause he always, after that, he always said, I'll try it. Well, nobody could sell it. He just give it back to us. The record's yours. Yeah. Way of life, the same thing. He would have loved to get a deal for it, but nobody could that way. We found the deals. They were all, they were too big, basically. They were already too established to find those other labels like Music Disc and whatnot. But Seymour Stein and all the, see, all the King's Horses and all the King's Men couldn't get a deal for it either. Because again, they were too already there. Yeah. We weren't yet, we weren't that there, and that's fine. And uh, even Seymour, who, you think he would have taken it into uh, Sire. I think he took Iggy, right, early days, because he had Danny Fields was the manager then who got him into Sire Records. And uh, so he's, again, he said, uh, you take this. It's yours, man. Because, you know, this beautiful thing about Rick, he, he was so generous, man. Not only would he produce the record, but then he'd give it to you. Right. Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah, he wasn't looking at property. He gave me the second record after the session one time after it was done. The TV takes, Rick would take TV masters of all the tracks without vocals. In the, in the happenstance, if it is, we do a TV thing where you need the backing tracks. You got either lip sync or... And he came up to me as we were listening to the final rundowns and we're sitting in the control room and he comes up and takes these big, the big masters, puts them on my chest like this. He says, these are yours, you take these. Yeah. All right, yeah. 
TV takes. Wow. Years later, I listened to them and I said, wow, that's an album. There's an album there, instrumental album, a whole different kind of vibe. You know, enough, enough different to make an album out of it. So that's like Cheyenne, you know, that's a solo album. Plus there was a couple of new other things thrown in. Yeah. So that's the story of those, 72. But your question relating to that. Was, was about when you when you'd recorded or finished recording, did you sort of feel like that was the end of a particular chapter in a project with Alan and that things were No, there? no, I never, I never felt that. It was, uh, just did. The first thoughts after recording was, uh, where is it gonna come, you know, how do we, after Rick couldn't get it out through his matrix, you might say, you know, uh, we, we somehow came up eventually looking around at you know, being told about, with Enemy Records now as a label independent in the States, right. New York. And we got a call from them or, you know, they, they heard a demo, we sent them and they wanted to sign it. And uh, the head of Enemy, said, man, I'd like to sign this record. We made a deal, a very nice, good deal for it. And, uh, I think we did a little final mixing on it before we let it out. And then all those, that record too, I kind of really, never being feeling it was done. I did that later again, whether I totally fudged it up. I really don't, I mean, I fudged it, but really scattered it. I don't give mm -hmm. it, I care. I could not live with that record the way it was if I had to. It didn't bother me because I just didn't listen to it. but. So uh, that's what came out later on the on the remute when it was reissued, because they asked me to uh, configure now a few reissues at one time, Way of Life and that one with with second CDs, live right. CDs. So that's where those packages, those kind of things, kind of come out of. But yeah, Enemy bought it and uh, and it came out that way. Now I never felt it was the end. It just it wasn't either because we did another record after that, whatever that was. Uh, but it was always dictated, it seemed to us, by what we could do on our own at the time and what was going to be, where we were going to be met halfway. Yes. You know, and that's that, you know, that kind of, kind of, that's your position. But the business end was not, was very essential because I was trying to survive all those years. But it was never my preeminent thought because the preeminent thought was creating. You know, it was, was like new sounds, new tracks, you know. You know and, I wasn't, how, and how do you, and, and surviving must be quite a tricky experience at times, trying to balance that with wanting to sort of do the project and be focused on the, on the work and then thinking, crikey, this is also, things have to sort of be paid. Well, every, everyone who's ever, even self-employed, but everyone certainly who is, uh, wants to, who wants to use a cliche in a way, artist, I mean, he wants to create in a medium of, of so-called art of their life and, uh, you know, and hopefully a livelihood so they don't have to work somewhere else so they have more time and more energy to do it, uh, has to deal with that. Uh, that balance, 
everybody has had to in history and everybody, you know, even when they're successful. Yeah. You know, I mean, because uh, you never, you never, uh, totally successful anyway. I mean, you know, I mean, Marlon Brando, you know, doing The Godfather, okay, now at least he's monetarily successful, which would have, which is a nice plateau to have, which I didn't have at that time. Where it doesn't matter if he ever works again monetarily. But in order to do The Godfather, he had to do an audition. You know, when they said, when his agent, whoever brought in the name, his name for, they were looking for a lead part, they were considering other people totally. Marlon, oh no, man, he's, that's another time or whatever, you know. Well, okay, I'll, I'll let him do it, let him do an audition. Imagine Marlon at that point in his career. Yes, I know. So he sent in that tape, he sent in a video of it with tobacco on the side of his mouth like this, he had the whole part. They saw him and they said, that's him. Yes. That's Corleone, Don Corleone. Miles too, I mean, Miles at the height of his career, Miles Davis. Columbia came in one time and said, man, you got to change. You can't keep putting out records like this anymore. You got to get in with electronic stuff. You got to start exploring that whole world because, you know, he's on now one of the biggest labels in the world. And you're on those, you know, now if you sell, if you go from 800,000 to 100,000, 200,000, you ain't selling, man. You know, you're going down. It's not like being on an independent, you know. A hundred thousand records, we would have been thrilled. Fifty thousand, great. Twenty-five is fine. Yes. You know, Miles probably was selling now, maybe you know, hundred or two. The whole everything was always as always changing. Jazz was changing, technology was changing. So he had to deal with that too. The whole decision of, yeah, and, and it's economic. But people try to say, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, I talked to a guy, he's, I think his name is Tom McConville. Anyway, he was in the Rockettes and the, um, the oh, another band. And anyway, he does a track called High Hopes, which then gets picked up by dear old Bruce, doesn't he? And you also have a Bruce moment. Is that something that gave you a bit of, um, well, you know, not a pension, but did that sort of help you artistically as well as financially, that sort of moment? Havelinas, that's the band that, that um, he was in. The Havelinas did a track called High Hopes. Bruce then covers it later. And obviously uh -huh. you also have Dream Baby Dream. So is that, is that one of those moments you think, oh, thank God for that? Uh, maybe in the general world of electronic, uh, music starting to become more and more the way of the land in a sense. Of course, what was really, uh, essential in that change was, was rap, hip hop and rap. Now you have not only two man groups galore, you have total electronic uh, palettes making sound on the most minimum, I mean, it was calling us minimals. Well, man, you know, out of necessity, well, what is hip hop and rap about? What is, what, how does that, you know? come out in terms of its format too, in terms of necessity for people to survive. You see all this stuff happening around you and sure you recognize now you're in a world that has, uh, has uh, relation points, you might say, you know, like sets of relative points, like they say in calculus. Yes. 
where our points relate now to other points out there. Whereas in the beginning, uh, the rock world where we were coming in, of course it related, but the instrumentation, the format of a five or four man group, drums, bass, and guitar, was considered so alien to what we, you know, different than what we were doing uh, without really that tie of other groups yet doing similar things as us. So uh, you were more uh, considered different. Uh, then we still were, we still always are, we probably are now, but we're not as much because now, like, at least the electronic, the electric part, making music totally that way, is starting to be accepted, embraced. New people, again, coming in, new generations, that's their world, too. Yes. You know, they hear the old stuff is the old stuff. They hear their stuff is what's happening now. Yeah. So that's, you know, that's where more people, that's where journalists, that's there's, there's re, resurgences sometimes of, of, of looking at us from the journalistic side and it continues. And did you, did you come across this kind of guy who works at the BBC called Adam Curtis, who does a lot of documentaries on political and cultural change and such mm. like, because he often uses your music, doesn't he, within his kind of narrative. And I just want to... He does what with our music? Sorry? He uses your music a lot yeah. within yeah. his documentaries to sort of emphasize uh -huh. a, a mood, I suppose. I just wondered if you've, if you've come across him and his work. No, he's still act. He's doing that now. He's still. I must. I'll send you a link. Okay. <laughs> You'll like it. It's very interesting stuff. Unless it doesn't play in America, then that's because it's the BBC. Anyway. I yes. So, so um, that was the Bruce Springsteen. So when you came and did American Supreme, which was the kind of the last album you did together, was this a kind of a moment where you, where you would ask by, were you on Moot Records at this stage to sort of bring an album together? Paul Smith, who I mentioned earlier, was now instrumental in everything from you going forward in terms of the albums. Uh, he, Apparently, from what I understood, was the key A&R guy under, for Daniel Miller, who owned Mute. He bought in Sonic Youth, Golden Palominos, groups like that. An independent maverick, again, yeah. uh, A&R guy. He was very close to Daniel, to his friends. So at some point, uh, he also, after the first record, a year or so later, we made a deal. He got it. He got the deal through Mute for the second record to be reissued. And then again, the uh, Way of Life and uh, Why Be Blue, again, to be reissued as double CDs. That was all Paul's uh, mind, I would say. Yeah. Very, brilliant, uh, very brilliant promotional uh, strategist, uh, you know individual, unique individual in music business uh, and knowledgeable person about art and trends in the music business, where things have been, where they're going. On the, especially, and on the English scene, especially, totally versed. So um, the fourth record, or the fifth, American Supreme, again, we hadn't put out a record in a while. Paul at that point felt, hey, it's good, man. You, you, 
people are used to the fact that you put out records every five to seven years or so. This is what he said after American Supreme, right? He said, don't put out anything right away. He said, man, it's too soon because you're on a different, you know, that's the, that's, you've set up that kind of a time scale. And, uh, but American Supreme, we hadn't put out anything that we're talking about now, 2001, and after A Way of Life, which I guess was 92, but it came out anyway, 93, you know. So there's eight years. Alan, you know, people would say, but, and Alan sometimes would say, yeah, we should really put out a record. We have, meanwhile, we're both recording solo things. And I never felt, and maybe Alan didn't totally feel that way either, that I wanted to do it the same way again. In other words, all right, we go into the studio, we come in with some tracks, we cut the record, we produce it. That kind of format, somehow it seemed like it's not, it's not getting to me this time. You know? yeah. It's not exciting me. Something different. So I held off. I kept, you know, just not doing it. I avoided doing it. And we didn't do it at that time. Then at some point I realized, hey, there's some tracks, man, because I was working a lot now with tracks, loops, uh, you know, a lot of computer stuff. Let's do it. Let's do a record this way. I'm going to, I'm going to give you all the tracks, man, on a disc. A lot of tracks, man. You listen to him and you put the vocals down at your leisure, because he was in a studio at least once a week doing his own stuff. Yeah. And that's American Supreme, and we and we produced it. That was, you know. And then Paul was aware of it all happening. It was a great idea. And then put it out. I believe at this point, easily, uh, EMI had, had uh, taken the, bought an arrangement with Mute to put out all the Mute stuff, which has since gone to BMG out of EMI. So American Supreme was, uh, came about that way. Yes. The first record we produced. And then literally. And then after that, you you sort of it seems that you're sort of you're you 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 become not say more popular, but you, you start sort of performing quite a bit more in 2010 and then again 2015 with different shows, performing the whole some of your the whole you know first album live in London, didn't you? So you were picking up quite an audience at this stage. Yeah, yeah. What happened was uh, we were getting a lot of offers by then. <laughs> it was starting to come in more than Alan wanted to do, actually. <laughs> and, uh, we had an agent who was thrilled, but very, I'm sure, desolate when she saw all the ones that were being turned down. But we did enough. But relating that a bit to what we were saying earlier, about 85, it started to build up too, where Marty said to us, listen, with Sig Zig Sputnik and those groups, a lot of them were coming out in English press and saying suicide. Mm. What was out of, out of nowhere, our first tour in Europe was really went with either a total explosion of confusion or acceptance or, you know, then it was gone. And again, not having that kind of management, we never followed it up. So from 78 to 79, we never went back. 
and now all these groups, there's this re, re-looking at suicide coming out of the English press. And Marty Thau, who we hadn't been working with in that capacity at all at that time, said, you should go back to Europe. Man, it's time to go back to Europe and do a tour, man. They're all talking about you guys. And uh, Six Six Sputnik, they're doing a new record, a Rocket Rocket or something like that. That's rough mm-hmm. rocket, you could say. And which he consciously wanted to do at that point. So he said, he, co- he hooked up with Paul Boswell, if you're familiar. Paul Boswell was a very uh, uh, high, you know, one of the most active, successful, I think, agents at the time in London, progressive agents too. And he put together a tour of us. That's where we went back to Europe. And we did that with Paul Boswell. We did like two week tours, uh, one or two a year or more, every year from maybe 86 on through 92 and on. And then it's kind of petered out of Paul changed his, his uh, emphasis a little bit into more of hip hop and rap. And then, uh, well, yeah, we were getting, by now we were getting invites. I mean, more invites, independent ones, you know, which always you get anyway. Yeah. And, and that relates to the period you're thinking about. Yeah, which is, you know, I suppose it sort of have, gives it a good chapter, doesn't it? And then a so-called end. It's not when you think right. about it, it's, they are kind of like chapters, aren't they? They are. I think they're you don't, you don't think about it's like your life. You think about your life and how there were really some it's all joined, it's really one thread, but there's some segmental things. Segmental things almost like chapters, easily chapters in a in a, in a book. Yes. I it's a good it's a good organizational uh concept if you want to write a book about something and just take each one and make a chapter out of it. And also when you're processing your stuff, you know, it feels good to you know, think of it like that, really. So then, yeah. so then coming up to the present day, obviously, you know, we're still here. You're still around. You're still, you know, obviously creating music or definitely thinking about it. What's your next project on the, on the sort of horizon? Well, I'm always, you know, my next project is my next, you might say, uh, collection. There's always albums, CD, but I don't, that's just the form in which we, the world we're in, it takes those forms. Yeah. Our world. Uh, so, but the main thing is the next body of work that I feel really good about, like in the sense that I'm satisfied with having it go out. And that's an ongoing process. And uh, a continuation of all the other processes and works that I felt that way good enough about before that came out as you know into the world that way. So and at the moment are you working very much on your own you know producing it and well that's what I'm doing that's the ongoing process yeah, yeah. it's a daily process daily. it's like somebody makes you know somebody I guess you could say another lack of a better word composing music you're sitting there you're writing a writer writes books he's writing every day Yes, editing. No. Otherwise, the book, yeah, the book doesn't get written. This is true. Everything is crafted. Yes. No. I just wondered what you have kind of lined up next for the for the sort of hopefully this year or next. Well, I never, I never felt, and I think rightfully so, that I was in that much control 
of the world, and I'd rather not be <laughs> where I could line up my future <laughs> that, that, that explicitly. There's too much uh, chance, or at least what seems like chance, and unexpected things which I love that have happened and that are going to happen. And that, and that too many things I'm not in control. And when you talk, when we're talking about now going in the world, we're talking about venues which are obviously closed now and have been. So live music out of my control is not possible, hasn't been for the last year. Uh, but that whole echelon outside of the work itself, the music itself, the love affair, you might say, itself, is not in my control. It's in my control if it meets me halfway. Yeah, if I go out, like many times with gigs, like the first suicide gigs, we'd go out to a club, we'd knock on the door and say, hire us, who are you? And some places get in, okay? But you, yeah. needed, the, you needed the acquiescence, at least, of the other side, the other person who owned the club. So I don't, I don't look to, uh, in the world of, that world artistic, so to speak, <laughs> again, to use that term, I don't look to really know what's ahead of me. I mean, we're really in a domain of recordings and live shows, essentially, for, for somebody in my world, milieu. And, uh, or shows, streaming shows or whatnot that may become the norm, hopefully not the total norm, but, um, and synchronizations, things being used or writing for movies, dance, things being taken for different kinds of, uh, yes. even ads and things. So you've that's- got, You've got quite the body of, you know, solo work as well, haven't you? I mean, that's, I mean, it, it's kind of quite a, quite, quite a sort of archive you've now developed. So it's, um, yeah, it must be quite something to keep that going and sort of wanting to add to it. Well, I have no, I have no choice in a sense uh, in that, that's me, that's what I want to do. That's what makes me want to, that's what makes me want to live every day. You know, not, not the only thing, it's the person in your life too, of course, yeah. without a doubt. But in terms of your, especially let's say in an isolated situation, if you're alone, for somebody who's always loved doing something and they're not doing it, uh, you know, it was always that way. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's an, it's an obsession in the best sense of the word. An artist has to be compelled, otherwise he wouldn't do. He wouldn't go through all of this, because it's you know, it's the love itself and the you know, love of more than that, but that also feeds it. But the love of the that dynamic of that world, the music, say, or the writing, or the painting, and the desire and the love of doing it. You know, what you feel, the process of doing it, the process of, of creating it, even though you're yeah. never creating anything, you're just, you know, rearranging what's already in nature, but that's technical, you know, semantics. Yeah. But that is a process that every artist or everyone who's even a businessman who loves business, even loves making money, wants to be a billionaire, <laughs> he's obsessed too, he can't do it out. What gets him out of bed in the morning is making another 600 million on his stocks sell or short sell, whatever, you know what I mean? 
Yes. If you're obsessed and you love what you do, uh, it's not really a choice. I don't see. It. I mean, it, it is a choice. It's always a choice. But what what else? You have to have other choices. A lot of artists do. They go into film. They open businesses, perfume companies. They act. You yeah. know. But some some maybe more committedly than others. A lot of times, it's it's, the, it's a very good uh, tool as a promotional tool when you're that big to now branch out, as they say. Mm. He said to Elvis, now the Colonel, he said, now you, let's start doing Christmas albums, man. I don't think it was Elvis's real desire to do Christmas songs, okay? No. But now let's sell to those people, those others that are not even buying, they're so big, you can sell, they got Chris, you know, it's that whole thing. The business has its own, dynamic of uh, polyance, let's say, of polying from one to the other. Mm, but so, so does music, music itself, <laughs> so. And I was gonna say, I mean, just to kind of almost lastly, I mean, if you could have said something to a, your 16 or 18 year old self kind of starting out, I mean, with the experience you've, you know, developed over the years or had and, and sort of wisdom, I mean, if there's, was there a few things that you would have thought, oh God, I, I would have loved to have just whispered that into their ear? That I missed? Things that or I didn't no, do? Or something that you would have loved to have whispered to yourself when you were 16 or 18 oh. starting out that you think, yeah, I would have just said, oh yes, there's a couple of things either to do or not to do or yes, or just focus that person. I don't think there was anything I would have... Uh whispered that I wasn't feeling then, except maybe um, and I don't know how we could do this when your consciousness is also evolving as you live, as you grow. Mm -hmm. You see? So at 22 or 19, my consciousness was probably fairly evolved in comparison, you know, a certain scale. But it wasn't where, you know, as you know, you come back 20 years later and you look back and say, how the hell could I have done that? Thought about that. Where was my mind? It wasn't in my consciousness. Yes. And of course, not knowing the future. So I would say uh, not knowing those things is really nothing. If I saw the future, yeah, I could have told myself, no, don't make that turn now. Don't make that turn because this is your future. This is where it's going, man. Mm -hmm. It's the crystal ball. This is where you're ending up. So you're wasting your time doing those turns, you see, in your personal life. It's mostly your personal life. Yes. Not artistic life. I don't have any, that was always what was right to do at that time and go from there. So I would say to someone, it's easy to say to someone else, you know, like they came to you for advice if they're having a personal crisis or they want to make a decision. Always, oh, you're always very clear when it comes to someone else. You can maybe even tell them then, you wouldn't give them what you think is bad advice, you know. No. But for yourself, you know, you're also beholden to your passions, your desire, your, you know, your hormones, your, you know. But in any case, and basically, no, it's, uh, I would always tell people uh, what I felt myself, just keep doing, just learn, man, study and learn and love it all. And what you don't know, that's what you do that even more. Work on what you don't know. Work on what confuses you. Work on what's <laughs> difficult. Yeah, work yeah. on what's easy. Okay, yeah, you can do, sure. Don't let go of what's easy, what you mastered already. The 
practices. But don't stay with that. Go after what the first thing that you say, oh, that's, that shit sucks. I don't want to have anything to do with that. That music, I don't like that. I can't, or it's too complex, or this is, you know. No, that's the stuff you should start learning. Learn it. Learn why, why it exists, why the people who did it loved that and what they were doing in it. And learn how to go through it and say, okay, I know that. Now I've gone through that. And I can even adapt. I'm going to learn some things through that. Always just keep, and not just music, everything, life and arts, especially. Yeah. Just keep learning, man, and studying. Yes, absolutely. You know, don't stop. Don't stop for the money. Yeah, make all the money you can and do all the perfume companies and the movies you, you want to do, you know, and all the jingles you want to do and the, and the, and the uh, phone, you know, the tones. Yes, <laughs> write all those <laughs> if you get a big big offer to do them but don't stop at least thinking that you're learning man keep looking shit up that you yes. don't that you want you know that's hard for you too and what did um and and when you're when you sort of just going slightly back what did your parents and brother think of of your sort of your musical moment when it started to develop and they got the chance to hear and possibly see you live? Well, in this sense, you know, as typical parents, less my brother because he was more of a peer in a sense, so he was not as judging, you know, as concerned as a parent in that sense, as brothers and siblings would not be. Mm -hmm. uh, but parents are, are usually, even some of the more broad-minded and open-minded ones, as the ones I had, are concerned about you going into the world and you know making a living, surviving. This is typical, you know, my son. And a lot of parents can be the most open people in the world when it comes to life and progressive, but when it comes to you know existing and their kids surviving, you know, they can be concerned. Yeah. So it's a matter of you know having to deal with those doubts and keep going and those concerns. Now, when you start to become, if you do, and you usually do start to become recognized to something at any extent, more and more, so, of course, they are, they are less that way and accept it more, but they're also relieved. I think inside they're relieved because their kid now is more secure. All right. I didn't think he should go into that direction because it's a fucking, step off the iceberg into the <laughs> off the iceberg and into the into the yeah. south sea you know off the cliff is more like it no that is like the most risky dangerous thing you can do in life pick a uh, pick a uh, a direction like that and commit yourself to it totally man i'm concerned about you at the best of the senses that's what parents are and when they see you you know then doing a little better then they're all right, at least he's going to eat. Yes, this is true. <laughs> he's, he's not in the game yet. That's the yeah. something. That's oh, good. It's universal. I'm glad they got to hear that. Look, this is good. Look. Oh, yeah, no, they did. They did. That, that's good. I will hit the... Um, so just briefly then, this yeah. is good. There you go. I hit the pause button. Ha! Um, yeah, so that's, um, that was me in conversation with Martin Rev from Suicide. If you're still with it, well done. 
I don't blame you. So, um, yeah, so if you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86show. Um, keep it positive. I don't, don't, don't write and say, hey, much you didn't like it. I'm not interested. Um, also, all these shows have been archived. You can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, just do C86show. Anyway, look, this has been David Eastall, the C86show. Have a great week. Stay safe.